to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Satan has always appealed to the same three things in tempting man. John defines the world in this way. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And those are the three things that Satan is always appealing to. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Genesis. Join us as Pastor Brian resumes his teaching on Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, in a message titled, The Origin of Sin and Evil. Now, here's Pastor Brian. The tactics, the strategy, the methodology of Satan has never changed. You know the old saying, if, it, if it's not broken, don't fix it. The devil has never really changed his tactics over all of these centuries. Why? Because they work. They're effective. And, and you will find as we look through and analyze this temptation, you will find that this is exactly the way the enemy works today. You will probably even say, oh my goodness, I was being tempted, and I might not have even realized it at that point. But, but I want you to notice the first phase. The first phase of the attack is very subtle. It's very subtle. What does he say? He speaks to the woman, and he says, has God indeed said? Has God really said? That's the idea. Has God really said? And he comes along to Eve, and he's trying to cast doubt on the word of God. He's trying to just plant a little seed of doubt in her mind. If he can just get her to begin to question, now, is that really what God said? Or did God really say that? And, and that's what he did. He came along and he just very subtly, and of course he was obviously a very attractive and beautiful creature, and he comes and he's going to point her in the direction of something that is, is very attractive as well. And, and the whole atmosphere is conducive for him to just slip in this subtle little suggestion that maybe God isn't being totally truthful with you, or that maybe you misunderstood what God intended, or maybe it wasn't God at all who said that. And that's the way he operates. He comes in very subtly, seeking to cast doubt on the word of God. But notice what he does secondly. He seeks to cast the commandment of God in a negative light. Look at how he puts it. He says, has God really said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You see, Satan here, he changed things around. Satan changes the positive invitation that God had given to man. The positive invitation was come and eat from every tree in the midst of the garden with the exception of one. But Satan puts a different sort of a twist on it. 
So he changes his positive invitation to eat of every tree of the garden into a negative prohibition designed to cast doubt on God's goodness, suggesting that God is essentially prohibitive. See, now he's trying to get her to to rethink God's goodness. God's holding you back. God's keeping you from something good. God is prohibitive. God doesn't want you to enjoy life. He doesn't want you to have a good time. He doesn't want you to experience good things. He's going to hold you back from that. Now, again, of course, uh, we know that this is a, a tactic that the enemy is still using to this very minute. How many people today are toying with that idea that God's holding them back? that he's keeping them back from a great time. He's keeping them back from great prosperity or success or something like that, that God is prohibitive, that he's restrictive. If that kind of thinking process is going on at all in your head, know this, the devil's talking to you. That's the enemy. He twists it. He tries to cast the commandment of God in a negative light. So he begins subtly... But look at what happens. The minute he senses that the woman is open to some of these suggestions, he then comes in very aggressively and very blatantly. But look at what Eve said. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. There it is. The bold, blatant, aggressive assertion that God is not telling you the truth. That you can't trust God. You can't believe what God has said. You will not surely die. The word of God has been the primary target of Satan from the beginning. He tries to cast doubt upon it. He denies it. He tries to break down our confidence in the word of God. And he starts subtly. He doesn't come in immediately aggressively and just flat out deny the truth of God. It's more subtle than that. And you can see that process has happened in the lives of individual Christians. It's happened in the lives of churches. It's happened in the lives of movements, denominations, however you want to look at it. You can see historically that this strategy, this, this pattern has been used over and over and over again, and it's been used very successfully. But it all starts with just a little bit of doubt being put in there. You know, when you read about some of the men today who are even sort of leading the charge when it comes to liberal theological views or even Um, atheistic views, you know, sometimes shockingly, you go back and you read their stories 
and you find that it all began with that subtle little suggestion that, you know, maybe this isn't exactly what God said, or maybe God didn't really say this. One of the leading liberal theologians who's publishing books today and, you know, speaking out against the, you know, the validity, the authority, the inerrancy of the Bible and so forth is a a scholar by the name of Bart Ehrman. And, you know, here's a man who seemingly, at least from his story, from his own uh, testimony, you know, grew up as a Christian, wanted to go into ministry, went off to, to Moody back in Chicago and got uh, a bit of an education there. And then he went from there a bit further into seminary. And then he moved from there. He went to Princeton. And it was there in, in one of his classes one day that, you know, somebody suggested that maybe a certain part of the scripture was um, invalid, that there seemed to be a contradiction. And this idea got a hold of this guy. And there were other factors that contributed to it, moral factors in his own life from what I've read. But today, he is one of the most outspoken guys in the world against biblical inerrancy and and the truth of Scripture as we would believe it. And you can see as you follow his, his history, you can see how it began, just that subtle suggestion that maybe this particular passage, maybe... Maybe uh, Mark got it wrong. And if Mark got it wrong, then how could this really be the inspired word of God? And it just took him off on this thing. And now, I mean, some of the stuff that he believes and some of the stuff that he promotes, it's just, it's unimaginable coming from a person who once had, seemed like anyway, a relationship with the Lord. But you can follow the pattern. It is so vital for our own personal spiritual well-being as well as the well-being of, of our church as a congregation and of uh, a movement of churches and the de- denomination or whatever. Ultimately, the enemy is going to strike at the word of God. He's going to try to break down our confidence in the scripture He's going to subtly come and suggest things, and if we buy into them, he's going to keep moving and and trying to take more ground until he finally comes to a place of blatantly denying the authority of Scripture and, and getting us to buy into it. So we have got to be aware of the way he works here. So he comes right out, and he blatantly and openly contradicts God's word, and he accuses God, notice, he accuses God of being selfish and self-preserving. He says regarding God, he says, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, the devil is suggesting that the reason God doesn't want you to have, uh, to partake from this fruit is he's threatened by that. Because you're going to end up being like him. And he doesn't want anybody to be like that. You can see the slanderous nature of this creature as he's there speaking to the woman. Now, it's interesting as we go on in the story, notice what happens. It says, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food 
that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. Now, Satan has always appealed to the same three things in tempting man. John actually spells it out very clearly for us in his first epistle, chapter 2. John defines the world in this way. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And those are the three things that Satan is always appealing to. And we see it right here. Again, like I said, he never changes his tactics because they work. And what John said when he wrote his first epistle is exactly what we see happening here back in the garden. What is it? First of all, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh. The tree was good for food. Secondly, that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And then thirdly, and it was a tree desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. And those are the things that the enemy still appeals to. He comes to us and he appeals to us on the basis of our flesh, those desires that we have. And he tempts us to fulfill those desires. Or he comes and he tempts us through the lust of the eyes. Or he comes along and he tempts us with the pride of life. You know, we see this exact same pattern with the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Think about that temptation. What happened first? The devil comes to Jesus and he says, you remember what he first said to Jesus? He said, if you are the son of God, seeking to cast doubt on the identity of Christ. Now, some people say, oh, no, that word sense, uh, if there is supposed to be sense, it's not the right translation. Uh, most translations say if. I think it should be if. Because that's the way the devil starts. He tries to cast doubt. So what is he going to get Jesus to doubt? After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, he's going to come to Jesus and say, are you really the son of God? Are you sure that you're the son of God? I mean, after all, could the son of God be in a predicament like you're in? And look at the audacity of the devil. I mean, if he will come to Christ and try to challenge whether or not he is truly the son of God, you know, he's certainly gonna not be bashful at all about coming to you and trying to suggest that you're not a child of God. And he does that, doesn't he? But he comes to Jesus, he says, if you're, and I think this is what he was getting at, if you're really the son of God, and where does he appeal first? He says, if you're really the son of God, take these stones and make them bread. Feed yourself, satisfy your flesh, meet that desire that you have. And of course, Jesus, we know, refused to do that. But what does he do next? Well, he takes him to a high mountain 
and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. What is that? The lust of the eyes. He shows them all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he says, if you will but bow down and worship me, I will give you all of these kingdoms. They've been delivered to me and I can give them to whomever I will. He couldn't get Jesus on the lust of the flesh. So then he appeals to the lust of the eyes. Jesus says, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God. Him only shall you serve. And the devil comes one more time. And what does he do? It says he takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And there he says, cast yourself down. Because it is written, he will give his angels charge over you and they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. What he's saying to Jesus is prove to everybody you are the Messiah. Do this great feat and let God come and rescue you and this will prove it, the pride of life. Don't leave anybody in suspense any longer. Don't keep them doubting. Let them know who you really are. You don't need to wait for God's timing. He's seeking to appeal to the pride of life. And this, again, is what he does. It's what he's been doing. It's what he does with us today. Now, Satan, of course, he's subtle And what he will often do, as he does here, is he will mix a little bit of truth with a lot of error. But the little bit of truth will be the palatable element. That's why he does that. Because what he says here is partially true. If you eat from this tree, you're going to be like God in that you're going to know good and evil. They, they indeed would become like God in that sense. But there was another sense in which, of course, they wouldn't be like God at all. But what Satan blatantly contradicted was the fact that they would die. And that is indeed what happened. But notice as we go on, As she took the fruit and ate it, she also gave to her husband and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Their eyes were suddenly opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. I want you to notice five things that resulted immediately from their succumbing to this temptation. The first thing they experienced, which they had never known at all, they suddenly experienced guilt. There was suddenly this horrifying sense that something was radically wrong with them in relation to God. So, you see, Satan's promising enlightenment. He's promising godlikeness. God says, no, the day that you eat it, you will die. And, of course, as God said, it was true. And so the very first experience they have, the moment their eyes are opened, suddenly they have this sense of guilt. Secondly, they have this incredible sense of shame. You know, 
I, I would imagine that to some degree, most of us in here could probably identify with this. Where we at some time in our life, I know I certainly can, you know, my life before I was a Christian, even though I wasn't a Christian, I had a conscience. Even though I wasn't a Christian, I knew there was right and wrong. Even though I wasn't a Christian, I knew, you know, in some sense there was a God that I was accountable to. And I can remember back to some of those incidents where I was being tempted and I succumbed to the temptation. And I remember all of, you know, the different elements that were involved and that, you know, anticipation as I was moving in that direction and that expectation of what was going to come from it, that little sense that, you know, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, but pushing myself and going ahead anyway. And then it's almost like instantly, the moment you do it, suddenly you're, you're filled with guilt and shame. And just for that one, you know, moment's pleasure or that, you know, whatever it might have been, you, you have this, this experience that's just, it's so contrary to what you were anticipating, what you were hoping for. And these emotions, these feelings, these experiences of guilt and shame, these, these things are huge. You know, guilt is such a powerful thing. People are literally crippled with guilt because of their sins. Sin will cripple you. You will come under the the pressure of that guilt. And those feelings of shame, they can be unbearable. And, you know, we can't even imagine at all the radical contrast with Adam and Eve because, of course, we have been sinners from birth. And so, you know, when we go deeper and deeper into sin, we go through a process and, you know, a slow hardening thing. I mean, they went from being pure and innocent and holy in the light to just instantly being guilty and full of shame and in the dark. But there's guilt, there's shame, and then look at what comes next. The Lord God called to Adam, verse 9, and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. I was afraid. And this is where sin takes us. We're afraid of God. We run from God. We hide from God. We don't want to hear God's voice. There is that fear that sets in. That's what happened there. And then the next thing, there's enmity. Now, notice this. Verse 12, God God says to Adam, how do you know that you're naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam says this, and you know, we chuckle at this sometimes, But think about it more seriously. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave me.
For the month of September, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, God of All Things, Rediscovering the Sacred in an Everyday World by Andrew Wilson. Have you ever wondered why God created things? Why did God create rainbows? Why did God create rain? Why did God create different animals or vegetation? Why did God create anything at all? Well, in his book, Andrew Wilson explains that God had a very specific purpose for creation, and God uses it even to this day to display His wisdom and to teach us that wisdom as well. Gleaning the insights that can be found in ordinary things, Andrew Wilson takes from both the Old and New Testaments to show how the ordinary things of God can reveal the extraordinary God of all things. The book, God of All Things, Rediscovering the Sacred in an Everyday World by Andrew Wilson is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Genesis. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.